this incident with the Jordanian ambassador was a watershed moment. It is a point of no return. It was this clear message. There's a new sheriff in town. The custodians of that holy sanctuary, which include the Laksa Mosque, have been the, the royal family that now governs Jordan. The fact that this took place means without any doubt that there has been a decision made at the highest level to interfere and perhaps even put an end to the Jordanian and Arab relation to this very, very holy place. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Miko, how you doing? It's very snowy where I am. How does it look in D.C.? It's snowing really? No, it's it's actually a not such a bad day for D.C. It's cold as hell, but it's um it's kind of, you see a little bit of sun. We've had a few nice sunny days, but man, it's cold. For me, it's, it's too cold. Like when it gets below 60, I'm not happy. And it's been below 60 for a long time. You're from Jerusalem. I get it. I get it. And I lived in California, Southern California for a long time. I'm spoiled. That does it too. The, the one thing I'll say is where I am in Boston, we are ready for the cold. We have good insulation. We have good heating. But when I'm in Palestine, yes, it's usually pretty warm, but there's no insulation and very little as far as proper heating if you're actually there in the wintertime. Everyone just crowds around a little space heater. If you're in Jerusalem, Ramallah, or Hebron in the winter months and you don't have proper heating, let me tell you something, it is bitter cold because those areas, the elevation is high. It's, what is it, 2,500, 3,000 feet. And it's very cold. It's this crisp, cold air. And I go between those three cities a lot when I'm there. And let me tell you something. You're never warm unless you're in somebody's home, which is really like a modern home, which is completely insulated and has proper heating. So anyway, yeah. So Palestine is, it's interesting in a way because it's so diverse in terms of climate. Topography. And topography, but the cold, the winter cold, the winter is better. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm currently sitting in a winter wonderland, feeling very cozy, watching the snowfall in Boston. But we didn't come here to talk about the weather. We came to talk about the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Jordanian ambassador was denied entry into one of the holiest sites for Muslims. So where do you want to start? Yeah, I think we should start with the incident that took place a few days ago, which was... So, so, so you're going to do that. And then I just want to give a heads up to people who are listening and they hear a bunch of words they don't know. After you tell the brief intro of what happened last week, I'd love to go over terms like Dome of the Rock, Al-Aqsa Mosque, Haram al-Sharif, Wailing Wall, Temple Mount, Islamic Waqf, because they're all on top of each other, they're all different, they're all very important, right? Yes, they are. And we'll say this again a few times later, but I have in an earlier episode on Patreon, and we might even have a short clip of it on the podcast, but if not, we can drop it. An interview with Yusuf Nache. He's like the number one expert, really, or one of the greatest experts on Al-Aqsa and that whole, on that region, Jerusalem, and especially the, the Holy Sanctuaries. We can refer to that. His name is Dr. Yusuf Nache. And the title is uh, the title of the post is Alexa in Danger. So we'll refer to that and we can put the links later on. And also if there isn't a podcast version, a kind of audio version, then maybe we can do that as well. A short one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we can re-upload the whole episode. 
good. And at the very least, we'll have some clips from it for today. Cool. Okay. So again, we started last week. So there's this incident, okay? And uh, if you didn't see the video, you should watch the video. The ambassador of Jordan, a country, an Arab country, which neighbors Israel and has diplomatic relations with Israel, has had diplomatic relations with Israel for several decades, walks out to pray. Now, Israel has, the Jerusalem police have these units of these goons. And when I say goons, Tony Soprano looks like a ballet dancer compared to them. Just scary guys. They're arms to the teeth. They're mean. They're like, they're goons. There's no other way to describe them. And they're all over the place. And this guy stops him, starts pushing him around. Now, of course, the ambassador came with a few other people with him. He's an important personality. And it was a sight that you could not possibly imagine taking place for several reasons. Like, here are some of the layers of why this is so incredibly horrifying. First of all, an ambassador comes to visit a site that for all practical purposes is governed by, at least for the, much of it is governed by Israel. And the police brutality against him was just appalling, inexcusable, unjustifiable by any stretch of the imagination. He's a diplomat. Okay. All right. Number two, Sorry, just to, inter to interject real quickly. So we're going to go over in detail, but the first step is just to say Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third most holy site for Muslims around the world. Very important site right in the old city in Jerusalem. Yeah, it is the center. It is the heart of Jerusalem. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the history of it and so forth a little bit later. But so now in, in, any Muslim at any point is allowed to go there and pray. There are no limitations whatsoever on the rights of Muslims to go there and pray. Except, I don't know, if they decide to close it down, if some Israeli dignitary comes, whatever, I don't know. But generally speaking, unless there's something going on, any Muslim is allowed to go in and pray. Any people going in and out, there's quite a few gates that lead into the compound. It's a large compound. And you should be allowed to go and pray. And again, he is stopped. Now, we said he's an ambassador. We said he's a Muslim. Now... Here's a little bit of history. So the entire holy sanctuary has been, un, or the custodians of that holy sanctuary, which include the Laksa Mosque, it's a large compound, has, have been the, the royal family that now governs Jordan. The royal family of Jordan comes from, hails from the family of, of the prophet Muhammad himself. They were the custodians of the holy cities in, 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 in Iraq, Medina. Insula, in Medina and Mecca, and originally... Anyway, it's a family, it's a very, it's an old tradition and they are the custodians. And even according to international agreements, after World War I, when the British came to Palestine, and then even after 1967, when Israel took over, this was maintained. And later agreements as well, the agreements with Jordan in the 90s and so forth, they are the custodians of the holy sites. Now, just to give you an example of how official and like practical this is, when I went to interview Dr. Yusuf Nache last year, he had an office in what is called the Islamic Trust, which in Arabic is called the Waqf. The Waqf is a religious trust. The Waqf are these religious trusts that govern and take care of the religious monuments and religious, yeah, religious monuments around the country. So the particular Waqf that takes the care of, like I said, of the Al-Aqsa compound is Jordanian because the Jordanian monarchy are the custodians. Now, the office of the waqf is really like right next to one of the gates leading into the compound. And there's heavy guards, heavy police, Jerusalem police, like standing guard there. And so 
I went there with a friend who took me to meet Dr. Nache at this office. And fine, we finally convinced the guard that we're not that where we're going and why it's okay for us to go there, whatever, fine. And when you walk in, it's like you're in Jordan. The Jordanian flag is there, the Jordanian pictures of the Jordanian. It's like any official Jordanian office. If anybody's been to Jordan, there's a, the king's pictures, the previous king's picture, there's the flag and so on. So you are actually in Jordan territory. It's almost like entering the embassy of another country. So this is very serious. They are the custodians, and this is something that's been anchored in international agreements. And uh, before there were international agreements, it was tradition that lasted for centuries. So that's the case. So this man represents the country that is the custodian of the site, who is a Muslim and is a diplomat, is met with this, the, this pushing and shoving and brutality and rudeness which you see everywhere in Jerusalem, really. And I've seen them on the site of Alexa because I've been there. I've... Are you saying Israelis can be rude and pushy sometimes? I'm saying that the rudeness and pushiness that Israelis are sometimes known for doesn't even begin to describe. It doesn't even begin to describe this. I can't, you can't even, I've seen it with my own eyes. And if you watch the videos out there, because it was obviously, this was, this, is, this was, this is a major diplomatic, catastrophe. I don't know how they're not dealing with this. I don't know how this is not international news. So it's enormously important. And we need to, what I want to discuss is what it means that we've come to a point that something this serious can actually happen. And then we, and we can talk a little bit about the history and some of those terms if you want as well. Great. The official response from Israel at first was, let's see if I can get a direct quote. Oh, had he waited a few more seconds, he could have entered. He said the police didn't recognize the ambassador and just need to check with his commander. Yeah. The idea that, oh, sorry, I just didn't recognize you, ambassador. Yeah. And so it's quite a story. But I will say it is such a succinct story of like, oh, it's just a misunderstanding. Don't worry about it. I shamefully have to admit, I, for a second, I was like, oh, maybe this isn't that big a deal. Maybe this was a stunt by the Jordanians or something. But of course, I think about 24 hours later, video comes out, like you're talking about, where they are walking and a policeman physically blocks them. And then one of the Jordanians, and we'll put it in the video, as much as you can tell from the sound, you can just hear some hustling and bustling. <laughs> This bearded man who's part of the Jordanian entourage tries to push the police for all of a whole large group to continue walking down the path. And then the policeman, in response to that little push, does a really hard full two-arm push against the bearded man. And then everybody's in each other's faces yelling at each other. So it just very easily contradicts this story of, oh, it was just a misunderstanding. Just had to wait a little bit longer. I mean, look, if this was the case, you walk in, there's a guard and then you walk up to the guard and he says, you say, my name is, and I've gone through places where I had to do that. A lot of people have. And they say, just excuse me, just a minute. Let me verify your name. They verify your name. They say, welcome. Come on. That's not what happened. He was all, he was already walking. He was already walking on the compound when this goon approached and started blocking them. And the point is that this is an escalation. This is a change. There's this word that they like to use a lot. In general, when it comes to the Palestinian issue, but particularly on the issue of Jerusalem and the holy sites, it's called a status quo, which kind of means you know, nobody touches, nobody changes anything, we leave things as they are. Status quo, nothing happens. Now, 
Jerusalem is one of the things you hear about the most. Status quo on the holy side, status quo on the holy side. There is no status quo. Israel is marching forward with destruction and pushing its agenda in a way that is so brutal. It's like I was compared to, to Roman legions marching through. I mean, there is no status. There's never been a status quo as far as Israel is concerned. Now, so we talked about what the waqf is. The waqf is that is a religious trust that takes care of the of these religious of religious sites. And that particular waqf, the Jordanian waqf, is that is that has been the custodians of of the Alexa compound. Now it's a compound. Alexa Mosque is the, there's a mosque, but yeah, we, now we can maybe go over all these. Okay, so the site, probably the most, most iconic picture, the most iconic symbol of Jerusalem, is this beautiful golden dome. The golden dome is not a mosque. The golden dome is a sanctuary. And the story goes that, which is the Omar Khattab, which was the, the Muslim Khalif who captured Jerusalem from the Christians. He came to Jerusalem and he wanted to know where the Holy Temple used to be. And the Christians didn't know. They didn't care. Nobody knew. And the Khalif, the great king, the great conqueror, walks into Jerusalem with plain clothes, you know, on foot, but very humbly. And he meets a Jewish beggar. Because Christians, when they came, they kicked out the Muslims, they kicked out the Jews, they killed everybody they could. So he meets a Jewish beggar, and this Jewish beggar says to the Khalif, I can show you where the temple used to be. And he takes him to the dump, the garbage dump. And the Khalif and the beggar go on their hands and knees, and with their hands, they clear the rubble, they clear the trash from the site, which was the holy site, so the site where the temple was. And according to Islam, there are other traditions that make that site holy. And, and you're talking about you're talking about the Jewish the first temple yes the, the second temple, temple the Jewish temple where the Jewish temple because Islam has ha, encompasses Jewish traditions and encompasses Christian traditions it encompasses all of the religions they consider everybody holy so anyway the great Khalif and the beggar the heads and he's clear the place and the Khalif who is one of the greatest names he's one of the greatest figures in Islamic history and and really in Islamic religion because he was a great spiritual leader as well. He vows that he is going to build the sanctuary where this will never happen. People will know it, will respect the site where the Jewish temple used to be. And that is why today we know where it is, because he built that. And then that was it. And then he also... Of course, the dome is known as the Dome of the Rock. Like you said, it's the most iconic site symbol of Jerusalem. Yes, and many centuries later, I think it was King Hussein of Jordan did the gold-plated... Right. So this is kind of I, a newer thing where so, the, the, the Jordanian king, they donated the money or they raised the money and they put the gold in the cover on it. Now, the story I heard, correct me if I'm wrong, is that basically you have the mosque, but it didn't compete with some of the beautiful, impressive, shiny cathedrals that Christianity was building. So I guess in, yes, in Jerusalem and in other places. And so that's why they wanted to have something just as impressive. Perhaps. But anyway, but no, no, it's not a mosque. The sanctuary is not a mosque. Sorry. Not, right. I'm sorry. But yes, the Dome of the Rock is its own sanctuary near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, yeah. the overall compound like in the, the center. Temple Mount. Now, the mosque is on the one side of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, is referred to in the Quran, where the Prophet Muhammad goes, travels there to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then from Al-Aqsa Mosque, he takes his night journey into the heavens. So the Al-Aqsa Mosque specifically, the Al-Aqsa. And so... When the Khalif Omar came, he was invited, the Bishop of Jerusalem gave him the keys to the city and invited him to the church, excuse me, of the Holy Sepulchre. 
and invited him to pray and so forth. And the Khalif said, no, I won't pray here. I'm going to go over to somewhere else and pray. And then we will build a mosque. He said, because if I pray here, I don't want some, somebody someday to come and say, Khalif prayed here, therefore we have to destroy the church and build a mosque. And he went over to the site, a different site. And that's where this particular mosque that we know today that has gone through several iterations and fires and all kinds of things. But this, we're talking about a 15, 1600 year old structure that as Yusuf Natchez, Dr. Natchez very eloquently describes in the interview I, I, did, I had with him, it was a living, breathing structure over 15, 1600 years, things were added. It was built, there are colleges there, there are schools there, there are important people of Islamic, of the Islamic tradition, Islamic history are buried there. He says very beautifully, it's a narrative within a narrative. And, and he calls it the cradle of the formation of Islamic art and architecture, because it, it has been there pretty much since Islam was in existence, almost. This, this site, this structure, this mosque, and so forth. And so it's incredibly important. And it's like you said, it's the third holiest site. It's the only, it's really, it's, the other two sites are in the Arabian Peninsula and what is now Saudi Arabia, Ken Medina. And so it's, this is not a small thing. This is not a small a place that is insignificant. Now, people will say, yeah, it was a temple and Jews have a right. That's the thing. Let's put this into just a little more context. Because you're talking about this story of meeting this Jewish beggar who points out the holy site under this pile of trash, right? But we should be clear, we also have the Wailing Wall or Hakotel, as Israelis and just, yeah, people in general refer to which is the wall of the second temple. And you've seen presidents and lots of famous people go there to put a little piece of paper, to put a little prayer in the wall and so on. That. So the, and that's, that's right in, that's the exact same area as the whole Temple Mount, Alex, Dome of the Rock compound. So it's all right on top of each other, as so many things are in Jerusalem, but this is the most important sites that are right on top of the Kotel is not a wall of the temple. It was part of the wall that surrounded the compound or the temple. Sorry. And no, that's a very common, that's a very, a lot of people think that the Western wall was actually a wall, one of the walls of the temple. The structure itself. Okay. But it's no, the surrounding it. We're yeah. talking about Herod's temple because where and how and why and whether or not ever there was a King David temple is historically not really clear. But we're talking about Herod's, the temple that Herod built. Now, what's interesting about Jerusalem in general is that Jerusalem is built for levels. That's why there are a lot of tunnels that go under the city. And if you can go under, you can go layer after layer. And because the city was built, and some of them have been cleared up so you can actually walk through them. A lot of them are just filled in. It's like it's arches filled in dirt and then another level. Arches filled in dirt and then another level. When you go, not the Zionist tour, what's called the Kotel tour, but there are other ways, <laughs> the non-Zionist versions of these, you can actually go under some of the churches and that lead you way, way down. It's a Sisters of Something Church. It's, it's one of the first, it's in the old city anyway. And you can go down if you pay, I don't know, five bucks. And you can actually go under and you get a sense of what it's like. Now, the, the level of where the holy area is, you know, that can hold hundreds of thousands of, of people. And it's built on arches upon arches, levels upon levels, which is actually architecturally very interesting. But the story is, the tradition is that was the place where the Jewish temple used to exist in the several hundred years the Jews actually resided and had some control in Jerusalem. 
According to Jewish tradition, because the site is so holy, and this is, I'm talking about 99% of the most important rabbis, the most important legal minds in Jewish law, Jews are strictly prohibited from entering that compound. The most strict restrictions that you can imagine, it is prohibited because it is sacred. And there are certain places within there that only the priests are allowed, and this and that and the other. So Jews are absolutely prohibited from entering. The settlers, who are a completely different breed of Jewish orthodoxy, this is a breed that has combined within it large doses of Zionism and this infusion of Zionism into religion has created this, this fascist, racist, hateful, violent movement, which of course is now very, very prevalent and prominent within Israel. And as an interesting, because they have their own rabbis and they have their own version and they decided that it's okay. I think I told you this before, and I know I posted about this. I've taken a couple of tours with these guys onto the, to see what they do, to see these tours. And the last one was during Tisha B'Av, which is the Jewish day, the day the Jews commemorate the destruction of the temple. And there was thousands of people waiting in line. It's August, it's hot, you just want to die. And as all of these Jews were standing there, there were other Jews handing out flyers saying, this is prohibited. Jews are prohibited. There's a prohibition and a list of rabbis and what they said and why it's prohibited. And these other guys, the settlers say, no, but our rabbis say it's okay. So the whole argument that somehow Jews should be allowed to pray there contravenes Jewish law, which of course much of Zionism does. So even that, I just want to put it out there because some people say, yeah, but the Zionists are saying, yeah, why shouldn't Jews be allowed to pray there? Jews are prohibited by Jewish law from going there and praying there. Now it's been a holy Muslim site for 1500 years. I don't think any single religion or people have ruled, have had a site, have had a presence, a significance presence there before or after, or certainly not since, but before that. So that we're not talking about a small thing. Historically, traditionally, the place is absolutely magnificently beautiful. And as uh, Dr. Nasi explains, the architecturally, artistically, the handicraft that went into building it, it's really remarkable and it's beautiful. It's inspiring. There you walk around there, it's quiet. Teachers bringing their kids there for recess, for lunch. Kids running around and playing. Families sitting there having picnic. Ancient olive trees. The views all around of the city are really quite beautiful. So it's a very, it's a special place. Now, going back to this diplomatic incident, once again, the fact that this took place means without any doubt that there has been a decision made at the highest level to interfere and perhaps even put an end to the, the Jordanian and the Arab relation and to this holy place. They want to interfere with the waqf. They've been interfering with the waqf for a very long time with this Islamic trust. But uh, I think that this is a sign to tell the world, look, you may think that the Jordanians are the custodians. Let me tell you something. This goon of a soldier speaks for us and we are now the custodians and you can go to hell. Yes. So that is a good segue to the specifics of Ben Gavir visiting Al-Aqsa Mosque. So you're talking about there's settlers who visit in groups, but it's much more significant than Ben Gavir's visit very recently. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Ben Gavir is their man. He is their man at power now. He, the Jerusalem police, including 
not only the Jerusalem police, but all of the Israeli police, including the policing in the West Bank, is all under his command. Now, he is part of this lunatic group of people. So they, um, what's their specific, what is their name? They don't call them themselves. Completely. There's a particular group which are called the loyalists of the Nehemiah Harabai, the loyalists of the Temple Mount. They're somehow loyal to the Temple Mount. They believe that the temple should be built and so forth. The other guy, his partner in crime, which by the way, it's very interesting because they hate each other's guts, but Vitalik Smotrich was now not only, he's not only the minister of finance, He's also a special minister within the Ministry of Defense. So he has two major, extremely important roles. He's a minister within the Ministry of Defense that's in charge of the civil administration, which is, which used to be part of the military. And this is the administration that takes care of the day-to-day lives of Palestinians in the West Bank. He was caught with 700 liters of gasoline in an attempt to blow up the Temple Mount. Wait, when was this? When he was still young and a young... Hey, Miko, Miko, we've all been young. We've all done things that we regret from our youth. Yeah. We have to be understand. Especially who, who, if... You- who hasn't visited a holy site with a bunch of gasoline in their possession with the intention to destroy it? He was arrested by the Israeli security service, by the Shin Ben. You're talking about Smotrich, right? But Smotrich, yeah, because they wanted to blow up Alexa. They wanted to stop the unilateral withdrawal of settlers from the Gaza Strip and so on and so forth. So... We're talking, what is it? We're talking about 50, 20 years ago or something. And Ben Gvir himself was, was also, he was caught trying to, not trying to, actually, he vandalized the limousine that carried the Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin. And then he said, we got to his car, we're going to get to him. He has, he admires, we talked about this before, Baruch Goldstein, who committed a terrible massacre. He's a mass murderer who committed the massacre in the Ibrahim Mosque in 1994. But these people were on the watch list of the Israeli security service of the Shabbat. He was called, he's being a, considered a terrorist by people who were involved in the Israeli security apparatus over the years. Catching somebody with 700 liters, which I think is almost 200 gallons, and trying to blow something up is not a small thing. But these are the people who are now in charge and they, and I said this before, they're zealots. Let's mean what they say and they execute what they say they were going to do if you give them the power. That's why, and I said this before, when zealots come into power throughout history, we've seen disasters. We've seen, oh, we've, it's always been catastrophic. And what's really appalling is how particularly Ben Gvir has become the darling of the Israeli media. And I've seen, I've watched several interviews with him where they're actually egging him on. They're saying, we haven't seen you at the, what they call the Temple Mount lately. When are you going to go? You said, you're going to go. You haven't been there. It's been a couple of weeks. When are you going to go? Or you said, Jews will be allowed to pray. What's going on? He said, oh, don't worry. I'll be going. And I go regularly. And Jews are praying. And Jews are going to continue to pray. And in other words, the media, the media, and I think we just talked, we discussed a little bit about this last time. The media is egging him on. The media has legitimized this racist, violent man whose who's hatred for Arabs and his obsession with killing Palestinians is such that he figured out that just being, a, just being a thug and running around and terrorizing Palestinians in the West Bank is really not serious work. So he went to law school. And I think I told you they have these very these law school, these colleges in Israel that are very easy to get into because you couldn't get into law school at Hebrew University, but people go into these other law schools that are very easy to get into if you pay. And then he becomes a lawyer, then he becomes a member of Knesset. He manages to override this sin of him becoming a member of Knesset because he was he was actually accused of belonging to a terrorist organization. 
And now he is the most important minister, without any question, the most powerful minister in the Israeli government. And that is terrible. And what happened to the uh, ambassador of Jordan could not have happened. This is not a misunderstanding with a local policeman. This could not have happened without a direct order coming straight down from Ben Gvir. Could not. It's like people say, oh, Shina Bakhle was a mistake. It was a straight bullet. First of all, it was, there's no straight bullets. We're talking about a sniper. And nobody takes a shot like that without either an okay or a direct order from the highest level of the chain of command. Some things don't happen accidentally. And what happened, this incident with the Jordanian ambassador is a message to the Jordanians. You may think you're the custodians, but there's a new sheriff in town. And what you saw, people are not paying attention because people don't pay attention to Hebron, even though in Hebron, the Ibrahimi Mosque is the fourth holiest site in Islam, the Ibrahimi Mosque, that where they push out and push the Palestinians away and open more and more space for Jews to go there and pray. This is precisely what they're going to do in Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, only a hundred times more. Because all around Jerusalem, again, we talked about this, what's called the Jerusalem Basin, there are cemeteries and churches and mosques, and sites and neighborhoods that they're going to get rid of in order to do what they call Judaize the city. Okay, so that's what you're going forward, this sort of peace thing. And I want to take a quick step back to support your point about this not being some accidental misunderstanding. Because Lord Tariq Ahmad, the UK minister for the Middle East region, was also blocked by police from entering Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, and then a little while later was allowed to enter. So it's, it follows this pattern completely. Apparently, it just didn't get as much coverage, but it follows this pattern completely, stopping them and then letting them go. It's like you said, it's just sending a message clearly. And again, thinking about what's happening going forward. According to some people, some reporters, both groups, so the UK minister and the Jordanian government have tried to downplay this and have not escalated it, but they might eventually have to escalate it. Do you see that, that they've tried to downplay it? And what do you see going forward? How will Jordanian royal family respond? Because again, we're putting in this context of they used to have custodianship over Mecca Medina. Now it's just the Al-Aqsa Mosque and it's, it's what helps them maintain their legitimacy as the ruling family of Jordan. So we've got them really invested in it. And then we've got Israel wanting to take it piecemeal. What do you see happening going forward with all of that? Nothing. I don't see anything happening. And that's really very troubling. As in the piecemeal it will keep on happening, but the Jordanians won't do anything. Nobody's going to do anything. And the ambassador, obviously, the Jordanian foreign minister invite called the Israeli ambassador to discuss this. And of course, I'm sure there was an apology and an explanation and some kind of an agreement that this will never happen again or something. The problem here is bigger than that. The problem here is that the Israel's piecemeal approach works. And it's not only the piecemeal approach whereby they do things on the ground. It's also placing a great deal of pressure with all, in all kinds of different ways, economically, politically, militarily, 
on the Arab countries and the Muslim countries around them where they don't want to mess up their relations with Israel. And so whether it's economically, whether it's because the regime relies on Israel for security, where all kinds of different reasons, Israel has established a whole network of methods by which they maintain relations with countries that will not recognize, they don't recognize the state of Israel, with countries that you cannot enter with an Israeli passport. And yet Israeli factories operate there and they're doing business with Israel and so on. Even Turkey has just upgraded its, its diplomatic relations with Israel back and there's an ambassador there now again and the president met Erdogan and so on. Even countries that are very vocal you know, about the Palestinian issue don't dare mess with Israel and Israel gets away with this. And when, and I said this before too, that a lot of people said, oh, America will never recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. They will never move the embassy because the Arab world won't stand for it and the Muslim world won't stand for it. The only thing that I, as far as I can remember that happened after they moved the embassy and the recognition took place is there was a conference of the Islamic countries in Istanbul and there was a condemnation. That's it. And there's always a condemnation. So there's a condemnation. The UN condemns, the Americans condemn, no, the Americans don't condemn. The Arabs condemn, here condemns, somebody there condemns. Israel doesn't really need to care about any of this because they get to do whatever the hell they want. And so this is a very important signal. I think this is, this is, this is a, one of those, one of those watershed moments. And the same thing with the British minister. You think they didn't know he was coming? You think the police, the, the commander on the ground didn't know that he was coming? You think there could have been, it couldn't have been done smoothly and politely and made it a present of an experience that is, you know, respectful. And the same thing with the Jordanian ambassador, certainly. They want to show there's a new sheriff in town. And this is how they do it. And they're succeeding. And nobody's stepping up. Nobody's speaking up. I've said this. You've heard me say it a thousand times. There has to be the international community needs to step up. They need to provide guarantees for the safety and security of Palestinians. They need to provide guarantees for the safety of Al-Aqsa. And again, not just the mosque, Al-Aqsa, but that entire holy sanctuary, which includes so much of the Muslim history and so much of Muslim religion. And besides which is a remarkably beautiful, remarkably, the architecture, the art, the history there is absolutely remarkable. Walking along the alleys that lead to the gates, or there's several gates, it's remarkable. And then you walk in through this gate and you suddenly see this golden dome and you suddenly see these structures and you walk by the mosque and it's breathtaking. I've been to Delhi. I've seen the Red Mosque. I've been to Fatipur Sikri. I've seen the Taj Mahal. Nothing compares. To, nothing compares to that moment where you walk in and suddenly your, your this entire open space is there and these breathtakingly impressive, beautiful structures stand there. Nothing compares to it. And uh, can you imagine somebody saying, yeah, we need the Red Fort, sorry, not the Red Mosque. The Red Fort in Delhi needs to be destroyed because whatever. The Taj Mahal needs to be taken down because uh, we need somebody else has was there before. You're not going to, nobody, nobody, yeah, yeah. Or Notre Dame needs to be destroyed because there was somebody there before. You don't hear this. You only hear this about Alexa. And it's absolutely... I can't even, I can't even, madness doesn't even begin to describe what this is. And this is, this was a watershed moment. This moment where the Jordanian ambassador was a message, was a signal to the Arabs, to the Muslims, and to the Jordanians. And so that view is becoming more mainstream. Do you have any sort of estimate as far as that this needs to be destroyed? Or did anybody outright say 
Look, I think I may have told you this story. I'll tell you one story. I know we got to go soon, but I'll tell you the story. Okay. Some people talk about destruction, but they don't, they won't say it publicly. Ben Gvir Smotrich won't say it publicly anymore because now they're respectable, but their people will say it without any question. They were marching through Therjirach just a few days ago, screaming and uh, Nakba too, Nakba too, we want to do another Nakba. The na Wait, first of all, the Nakba never happened, but we are going to have a second one. Exactly. That's exactly how it works. And so you have the official face of the statesman, but then you've got the people on the ground who are doing the work. And then after it happens, the statesman said, we had nothing to do with it. Or it wasn't really that way. This is how the Zionists have been operating from the very beginning. When Dir Yassin happened, the official, the village of Dir Yassin, a small village, peaceful village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, horrible massacre over a couple of days. The official Zionist establishment line was, this was horrific. This should never have happened. We don't stand for things like this. But you know what? Thankfully, as a result of the massacre, hundreds of thousands of Arabs fled, and now we have a Jewish majority. That's how it works. That's how the establishment puts some distance between them and the zealots, who in those years were people like my dad, and today are used to be Ben Gvir, now it's Ben Gvir's people on the ground. That's how they put that distance, that distance between them. So the discussion is not about destruction. It's, just, it's about allowing Jews to pray. It's about equal rights. It's about it's not fair. And then it's going to be about having a space for the Jews to pray. Why did the Jews pray in the hot sun? And then you build something. And when I was a kid, we used to sing, may the temple be built. And I'm going, why was I singing this? Why were people, kids in my school, in my environment, which was completely secular, we couldn't open up. If we opened a prayer book, we wouldn't know what to do with it. We are singing, may the, may the, we shall build, we shall build a temple. What the hell are we talking about? And then the line from the Six Day War, which I mentioned a lot too, the most, the most memorable, most iconic line of the entire 1967 war was when the commander of the paratroopers who, took, who conquered Jerusalem, who occupied Jerusalem, he stood there and he said, the Temple Mount is in our hands after 2,000 years. Who the hell does he care about the Temple Mount? He wouldn't know what to do it with. He never prayed in his life. He was a secular Israeli, just like the rest of us. Another, another, he wasn't a general yet, but whatever, colonel. Why is, this is not just a religious, fanatic, fringe issue. This is a national symbol. Israelis want to see their temple built again because we are educated that it was a natural symbol that we deserve to bring back. And goddamn, that damn mosque is in the way. Never mind that the mosque has been there longer than any temple, anything else that's ever been there. Never mind that the mosque is incredibly important to over a billion people. Never mind the fact that it's only thanks to the fact that the mosque is there that everybody knows where the temple ever was. It's absolutely horrifying. But it's become this national thing of Israelis wanting to see a temple being built, even though they've never prayed in their life. And that is very dangerous because now it is a national symbol and a religious symbol. And when you combine those two things, you get very terrible things happen. Yeah. And then a small minority of religious people. You're saying that the majority of rabbis say that it's forbidden to go to that area. Of the Orthodox rabbis, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, the greatest experts in Jewish law, they say that Zionism is contravenes, we can talk about another time, contravenes Jewish law. The idea of Jewish sovereignty in the Holy Land contravenes Jewish law. And certainly stepping on the hallowed ground where the Holy of Holies is, is strictly prohibited. So everything these people do, I mean, they were, may look like Jews, 
And everything they do contravenes Jewish law without any doubt. And never mind that, these are racist, gun-toting, homophobic, misogynists of the worst. Religious extremists. And we give them, we as in the United States, give them directly every January to push of a button, $3.8 billion to play with, to do whatever they want with. Yes, exactly. And that's why it's important for us to be talking about this and important for Americans to be working on this issue. Yes, there are other issues in the world that matter, but there is a special responsibility as Americans to speak up about this because because we we, we directly fund it, directly fund it. Yeah. And also, I think also there are a lot of issues around the world. You're right. But I think there are certain issues that we get that that are somehow we get judged. You talk about Vietnam, you talk about civil rights, you talk about these issues, apartheid in South Africa. You don't want to be the one to, that stood on the wrong side of those issues today. Yeah. You don't want to tell your kids, oh yeah, I supported the war in Vietnam because it was a great idea and the bonding of Cambodia and Laos, and that's fantastic. I supported Nixon 110%. You don't want to be that person. I call, I thought that gay was a terrorist. You don't want to be that person today. It's embarrassing. Palestine is going to be the same issue. Our kids are going to ask us, our grandkids are going to ask us, where did you stand? And you don't, I feel sorry, not sorry, actually, they deserve it. But the people who who are standing with Israel today are going to be hiding in some corner or like many others, they will just lie and say, oh, of course, we support Palestinian rights. I've heard South Africans say, oh, yeah, we love Nelson Mandela. What are you talking about? People, White South Africans, you mean? Yes, white racist South Africans. So people tend to either lie or just hide in a corner and hope that it will go away. Some double down, of course, do double down and continue to yeah, say here. it was that uh, Palestinians. But, but this is an issue that's going to, that's, we're all going to be judged on. There's no question. Palestine will be free. And the Zionist the regime, like apartheid in South Africa and Jim Crow, are going to collapse. And so I know that. I want, I want my kids to look back and know that I stood up on the right side of the issue, but not to, and I think everybody should want, should want to be on this issue because this is the right issue. This is the right fight to fight. This is the right struggle to be part of. And again, I'll say again, two things, and then we, I know we, and then we'll finish. Number yeah. one, this incident with the Jordanian ambassador was a watershed. It is a point of no return. It was this clear message. There's a new sheriff in town. And the second thing is. The international community, which includes us, which includes all people of conscience, must stand up and demand safety and security for Palestinians. That is a great note to end on. All right. Thanks, Van. Always yeah, great. thanks so much. All right. Oh, and we just got some new Patreon-exclusive content up. By the time this episode comes out, that'll be there. We'll have a promo that everyone can see, and then you can see the rest of it, where, you, where Miko, you dive into not only... Ben Gavir and Smotrich, but some of the other extremists that are now in positions of power, name by name, their position, what they're doing, what's going to happen. So, yeah, I think. And the interview with Yusuf Nache, Dr. Nache. Yes, we'll make sure that yeah, that's there as well. We'll put out maybe a little, a little taste of it and some of it on the podcast as well. So people can hear at least some of it. But it, it's remarkable to hear this man talk about this place. He's the expert about this thing. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Yay. Thanks to everybody. See you next time. Hey, everyone. This is Ellie. Just wanted to add, Miko reached out to Dr. Yusuf Nache, one of the foremost scholars on the Alaska Moss Compound, as he mentioned in the podcast. And Miko asked about the custodians of the holy site throughout history. So Dr. Nache was kind enough to send us this audio clip. He lays out the history and really emphasizes how important 
the site and the custodianship have been. So please enjoy that. And thank you to Dr. Nache. Hello, Miko. How nice to hear from you. I hope you are okay. Concerning the custody of Al Haram Sharif, I would like to draw your kind attention that from the first moment of the construction of Al Aqsa Mosque, from till almost now, the care, the interest of preserving Al Aqsa developing it used to be in the hands of the most important governors of Islam. Princes, governors, sultans. Take, for example, the first to construct an Aqsa mosque is Umar did the best of his architectural development project. His son, Al-Walid, also. Most of them did their best for Aqsa mosque. Also, even the Caliphate and Al both gave Jerusalem one of its best restoration projects that continued to be in the hand of Saladin and his successors and by the most of the Mamluk Sultans like Nasser Muhammad and others. Take, for example, also Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent Muhammad. So from the moment of its construction up till now, it seems that the people who take the custody used to be the most important of Islam who would like to appear in the eyes of their subject as preserving Islam, defending Islam, caring take of Jerusalem, respecting Jerusalem. And that continued through most of the sultans and period. But when the Ottomans were evacuated, uh, British mandate prevailed uh, in Palestine, the country, uh, the custody and the care used to be in the hands of the Supreme Muslim Council. At that time, uh, sought uh, an assistant from most of Arab worlds and elite, and the Jordanian uh, Prince Hussein bin Ali extended his assistant and his donation for Al-Aqsa Mosque. In my modest opinion, the official custodian of the Jordanian started 1952 when Jordan ruled Jerusalem and took care of most of the, its holy places. And that was really witnessed with the great restoration projects implemented in 1960s and continued up till now. All the best.